This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Dr Keith Souter is one of Australia's most influential commentators on national and foreign affairs. A futurist, consultant and author, he's a regular guest on radio and television, as well as the host of the Global Truths podcast on this network. Dr Souter was awarded the Australia Government's Peace Medal in 1986 and has been a member of the prestigious Club of Rome since 1993. Now, is it right in uh, me saying that the one... The item you found the hardest to choose on was the um, film. Yeah. Okay, so can we start with the film? You chose uh, the Oscar-winning smash hit of 2016, La La Land. Um, Tell us about uh, the film and also the the story behind why you chose it. So I enjoy the film because... um, uh, particularly for one little video clip, which... Um, someone it, in the crowd. Someone in the crowd. Uh, and I show the first one minute and five seconds to my Boston University students. I have a, a session where I talk about networking, how to get work, because universities are not very good. They give people an education, but not the tricks about how you actually get employed. So we have a session looking at the importance of networking, right connections. So it's a question of, of what you know, which is what universities are good at, whom you know, but also who knows you. And that's the importance of networking. And so that little video clip, just for one minute, five seconds, sums it all up. And it also sums up my life. Well, so to ex- explain for people who haven't heard that song, because the lyrics are amazing, explain what the song says. So the song is about uh, en- en- encouraging the the heroine in the movie to go out that night because someone in the crowd is someone you need to know. Someone who could lift you off the ground, someone who can take you where you want to go. Exactly. Brilliant, but you've got to be, you've got to be ready. And you've actually got to turn up at the function. Remember, yes. In the actual movie, she's <laughs> reluctant to go out that night. She just wants to sp- yes. spend her time at home. But in fact, the movie is about getting out there, getting to meet people, making the right contacts. And when I look back over my life, I've um, been in the workforce for over half a century. I left school at 15. Right. So um, I've never been unemployed. I've had a variety of positions over the years, and most of those have come about because people have approached me. Right. I have a parallel program on this network called Global Truths, mm-hmm. and it was the head of the network who approached me. Right. So that, that's, that's what I mean by networking and getting the word out there. So throughout my life, that's basically how I've got employment in one form or another, through people that I've got to know. So increasing the chances of good luck and opportunities coming your way. Absolutely. Now, women do that naturally. Uh, men don't. Men, men are very bad at, at automatically networking. Women will ch- spend a lot of time chatting. You notice that even when you're looking at children, that little girls, while they're playing with their dolls, will also be comparing information about their parents. Whereas boys, while they're playing with their steam engines, this is very stereotypical, while they're playing with their steam engines or whatever, will just be talking about the toys at hand, not about their family background. 
Right. So girls somehow pick this up automatically. And in the new world of work, networking is going to be crucial. In other words, the old idea of working Monday to Friday, nine to five, that's gone. Yep. Uh, So I've lived my life on the basis of going from one gig to the next. And I've been doing that over the last quarter of a century. And I'm proof that you can live that way. Um, and so you've got to have networking skills. And, and, and for me, there's a downside in, a, in one form of male thought, which I might uh, unfortunately have, where you can be a little bit too linear and logical. Where if I say to my wife, oh, I don't want to go to that function tonight, because there's not an obvious reason, there's not an obvious, it's not a job Good interview. Yeah. Uh, whereas what she will think is, yeah, but if you go and you are engaged and charming and listen, you might meet somebody, someone in a crowd, yep. who can take you where you want to go, and there's no guarantees, and you don't want it. You might be going there thinking, I might meet my next guest for Podcast One, but you actually meet someone who gives you your next consultancy gig. Exactly. Right? So, so don't agonise about the actual outcome, just someone in the crowd, and, and the, the last line of, that, of those lyrics is, um, if you're the someone ready to be found. Yep. And a mate of mine once said to me, a decade ago now, uh, is, treat everyone that you meet as if you secretly know they're going to win the lottery tomorrow. <laughs> now, now, the overall film itself, um, it, it, do you like it, do you like it um, just because of that song or, or, or did it stack up as, as, a, as a movie in its own right? Oh, in a movie in its own right, but that particular video clip is what stayed in my mind. So you, you've chosen a populist recent film, but for your book, we're going back in time to 1905, an amazing book. I'm so grateful that you chose this because I hadn't been aware of it before. It was written in 1905, but it wasn't published until 50 years later. Uh, It's called Buckskin and Blanket Days, Memoirs of a Friend of the Indians, written by a remarkable bloke who I loved reading about, Thomas Henry Tibbles. Tell us the story. So I grew up in post-war London, and so uh, very much taken up with cowboys and Indians and John Wayne. So that was the sort of the dominant view that I had of society. And because I enjoyed reading, that's where I got my education, not at school. So I got this book out of the public library and this completely changed my attitude towards the Indigenous peoples of North America. So instead of seeing them in Hollywood terms, I saw them, in fact, as victims of Western expansionism across the United States. And it it encouraged me to have an interest in the underdog and the fate of Indigenous peoples, which I've maintained since coming to Australia, since I've been involved with campaigns for Indigenous people here. Now, of course, it's very fashionable. I was at a company director event recently, and they began by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we meet. Very polite, but they wouldn't have been doing that a few years ago. So it's very interesting how uh, Henry Tibble's... um, had stimulated in me this interest in Indigenous peoples, which I've continued all the way through. But also what is important is that I grew up liking John Wayne, Wild West, cowboy movies and that sort of thing. Um, and it, just one book just changed my whole attitude towards those Indians. That's, that's a wonderful story. And how old were you when you read it? Um, so I would have been about 11 and have you reread it? No, I haven't. I really ought to. It is now available. I notice that it's now one of the, the standard books um, from the University of Nebraska Press. Right. And, and the story of him, you know, 
basically going west with the pioneers. Uh, reading about him a- a- as a man, remarkable. He-, he ran to be vice president of America. He, he was um, virulently anti-slavery and he-, he was captured by pro-slavery people, sentenced to be hanged. Yeah. And escaped. And escaped. Unbloody believable. <laughs> and also there's a wonderful judgment. I mean, it was really moving, Keith, where, where he was instrumental in the 1879 ruling that, and I quote, yep. an Indian is a person. That's right. You go, so to a young mind, when you're 11, you're reading that, how amazing to turn that sort of that John Wayne thing on it. Absolutely. On its head. Just one book, did yeah. it? Yeah. And, and, and do you, do you prophetise and re- recommend your students or your friends read it, or is it just a sort of a guilty secret? No, no. I, I was challenged for this programme to think of a book. Yes. It's the first time I've gone back to that book now for decades. So thank you very much for the invitation well, to well, revisit I, that. I, I, I am so thrilled to hear you say that, because that, that's that's part of what this whole thing is about, is making people think about those things that have had an impact on them. Yeah. And, and to some, for you to speak so sort of movingly about something that you haven't read for 50 years, it just shows how amazing an impact a book can have. It lodged in my memory. Given that change of perspective you had at the age of 11, in a sort of a sliding doors way, yeah. how do you think that then affected you cumulatively as you, as you became a young adult and then an adult and then the distinguished person I'm looking at now? Well, I think looking back, um, it gave me an interest in social justice, right? right? The phrase that we weren't using all those decades ago, but it gave me an interest in social justice and a concern for the underdog and a concern for Indigenous peoples. So, right. yes, it was life-changing from that point of view. I didn't realise it, but a seed had been planted in my mind. But when I look back over some of the things in which I've been involved over the subsequent decades, ultimately they're traceable back to this one book. And it's amazing how a popular narrative can sort of get it wrong. You, you talk about the John Wayne films yeah. and, and shoot him up westerns. I've just come back from Vietnam and you, you go through the Ho Chi Minh War you know, memorial and it's the American War, it's not the Vietnam yeah. War. And, and you, go, you go, wow, just that one thing changes your whole perspective. You go, well, if you were there, well, of course it's the American War. So it, it's, it just makes me, uh, I'm a long-range optimist, it makes me happy to think that you can plant seeds in young minds that can change and affect them for the better for, forever. And that's one of the joys of education, that you've no idea what sort of impact you'll have, and then decades down the hopefully down the track, I'll get one of my students while they get onto the US Supreme Court or whatever say, oh, that's what that guy in Sydney was talking about. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's one of the joys. You touch the future when you're teaching. Yes. So th- 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 I think there's a bit of a related theme here with your someone in a crowd, where, where if, you, if you live your life with integrity and passion, you, you never know where things may go and what effect you might have with you. But that, but that doesn't that doesn't matter. You, you just, you know, you educate, you, you, you stick to your in- integrity and authenticity, and there might be people who you will never meet again and you will never know, but whose life you changed in a lecture in Boston. Um, so we're going to come back uh, um, towards, nearer towards the present. We're going to the 1960s because your uh, song your, is different to your book which covers some serious and potentially morbid themes and issues. Uh, your song is relentlessly cheerful. You've chosen a track from the Beatles' Revolver album, which is Good Day Sunshine. 
Absolutely. Uh, now, so, now uh, I, I, I have to say, with the greatest of respect, if I was choosing a Beatles track, it would be a long list before I became to this one, <laughs> and it, it would be it would be wrong if we were all the same. So, uh, tell me the story behind that choice. Well, because it's a nice, happy song, and it reminds me of a nice, happy time in my life. And I met the Beatles. How many people can say you saw them across a crowded concert uh, stadium or met no, them? No, met no, no. Served me at the counter. Wow! In, in their ridiculous shop. In not ridiculous. In late <laughs> 1967, um, partly as a tax dodge, because they were making so much money, their accountant said you should go out and just spend some of the money. Otherwise, you're going to have to donate it to the British government. So they created a shop on Baker Street. 94 Baker Street. Right. I know it well. And so I used to work in Barclay Square at that time and would walk from Barclay Square up to Baker Street Railway Station to take the train home. And that's where the Beatles store was for a few months. It was a financial disaster for them. The staff and customers both stole from the store. They really weren't serious store managers. But anyway, it was, that's how I got to meet them. And, and so they were behind the counter? They were behind the counter. Look, I know it's a different world in those days. What did you buy? I can't remember from that far back. But I did buy. I didn't steal. So I did go to the shop with honourable uh, mentions. But it was a different world, you know. It's a bit like... I tell my students about meeting the royal family. Yes. See, my family used to watch them play on Smith's Lawn at Windsor, and in those days they all mixed freely with people. This was the 1950s. Right. Well before the IRA started their problems and the Islamic terrorists, et cetera. So it was a different world. The same with meeting the Beatles, um, that they were, they were there in the store, uh, some of them behind the counter, chatting with the customers, et cetera. And that, that was what the world was like. And so for me, that that particular song, Good Day Sunshine, is a nice, happy song. And I, I think you do need a bit of happiness in your life, right? Lifting up the spirits. Because um, I spent a lot of my time dealing with nuclear weapons, uh, terrorism. That's how I've made a name for myself. And so you do need a bit of optimism and sunshine in your life. Good Day Sunshine. So, Dr. Keith, for your fourth choice, we're going to stay in London because you've chosen London as your place. Tell us about that. So, I'm I'm a Londoner. I, I uh, born in London. Born in London, and uh, grew up in London. Came to Australia temporarily in 1973 to do a PhD, and I've just stayed on. Um, and I go back to London. I've still got relatives living in London, um, and so that is my favourite place. Um, it's. Um, obviously f- contains many memories, you know, in terms of my growing up, first employment. I, I went to university, not in London, but at, at Sussex at, uh, on the south coast. Uh, 1969 was the last year that Oxford required O-level Latin. <laughs> and I couldn't get into Oxford because I didn't have O-level Latin. So Sussex was actually harder to get into. So I, uh, I'm an educational disaster. Um, I left school at 15, almost 16. And in those days, there were no problems with employment. So I just walked into a job at the war office. And uh, so I stayed in the war office and then started to get my act together. So I had failed the 11 plus, failed the 13 plus, which is why I was allowed to leave school at 15, because obviously I was just fit to be factory fodder. Uh, But when I was in the civil service, suddenly I started to get my act together. And by the age of 19, I had acquired the equivalent rank of a captain, so I started as a private, equivalent rank of a private soldier and ended up at 19 
with the equivalent rank of a captain and then thought, well, look, I'm on this winning streak. I might try to go to university as well. And, and so you're sitting here now, uh, a man who left school at 15, and you got three doctorates, is that right? That's right, yeah. So it's, it's a very inspirational story, and, and, and you've made a decent quid out of the gig economy for half a century. <laughs> uh, half your luck, mate. Absolutely. So in, the, in regard to the education, obviously education is the root out of poverty for me, which is why I encourage my students to see that marvellous movie called Educating Rita. Yes. Which deals with a young woman who wants to stop being a hairdresser and wants to go on to do something else, but also how disruptive it is to her life because once you are educated, so you lose contact with your old contacts because you're going into a whole new era, new world, etc. So for me, education was the key factor for me um, and, and I've just continued to enjoy learning. So, yes, I was uh, recently awarded my third PhD. Because we, we share something in commonality, because we both studied religious studies. That was my master's degree, yeah. Yeah, but, but didn't you study um, the Uniting Church? Was that, was that... that was the third doctorate You're on right, the future okay. of the Uniting Church. So scenario planning, yep. which is a technique for thinking about the future. How's it looking for them? For the Uniting Church, yeah. well, I think what will happen is congregations will continue to die off, but the social welfare work will continue to expand. So the Uniting Church is a major player in Australian society and the Catholic Church is the largest single employer in this country. I judge. Schools, uh, edu- you know, the education, hospitals, etc. Well, the other welfare work. I wouldn't have guessed that. No. So the religious side, um, okay, declining congregations, but expanding welfare work. So, so which suburb of London were you born in and, and which so, suburbs did you spend your most time growing up in? Well, it would have been Harrow, right. near Harrow, okay. a little village of Vickenham. Yep. But Harrow is what most people would know. But, so the villages between Harrow and, and Uxbridge. So okay. on the western side, it's the yep. edge of Midsummer. Yep. If you know Midsummer murders, so yes. I used to cycle through Midsummer uh, territory. That's why I enjoy the TV programme. It's a reminder of an England that never existed, but yes. you have clear memories of it. Um, so it, it was a good area in which to grow up and a good time in which to grow up, um, particularly compared with today with all the confusion in the UK over its future, etc. But uh, I just enjoyed London. I still enjoy going back there. So I go back each year, um, stay um, uh, in London at the... Um, at the club, uh, the Royal Naval Club at um, in Mayfair, and it's a good jumping-off point to go around exploring London. Right. When a man is tired of London, he is tired of life, for there is in London all that life can afford. Oh, I love Samuel it. Samuel Johnson. <laughs> now, we're going to come on to uh, my favourite of the five things because it's where usually uh, people get a little bit more personal because it's their possession, and, and, and I'm yet to meet a guest who says, my Ferrari, they usually, you know... <laughs> Choose something quite yeah. surprising. And you have just wonderfully chosen, I can't wait to hear about it, your 1986 United Nations Peace Medal for Service to the UN Association. Tell me about it. Right. So the UN Association itself has been, again, one of the turning points in my life. So uh, soon after leaving school, I joined the UN Association in Great Britain. And this is, again, goes back to where we started in terms of networking. So through the UN Association, I got to meet a wide variety of people and I have remained involved with the UN Association. I'm now a life member of the UN Association. Uh, But at at, at various points, I've been the national president, I've been a state president in New South Wales and also in Western Australia. Um, And this is, I've brought the medal along for Ah. you to have a look at. So that's the UN Peace Medal. Um, And so 
for me, it's um, a validation of the work that I've done. I've always been an outsider, in a sense, uh, with a, a warning voice. So I was involved, well, obviously with the Indigenous people issue. That that's made, made me an outsider, which has now, of course, become respectable. But also things like the peace movement, um, you know, warning about nuclear weapons, etc. cetera, um, being a member of the uh, Club of Rome, which is warning about the environment, um, and also the social justice work generally that I've been doing with the Uniting Church over the decades. Uh, so for me, receiving that medal was a validation that at least someone is appreciating the work that I've been doing because I'm I'm a bit of an outside warning voice. Right. So particularly if you listen to Global Truths, the parallel podcast series, what I'm doing there is, is just warning about some of the long-term issues that we need to confront, problem of, of robotics, uh, the displacement of workers, problems with the economy, rise of China, which has all sorts of challenges for us. So I'm a bit of an outsider, but then receiving a, a, an award like this is a way of saying, well, there's somebody who appreciates what I've been doing. Oh, and and legitimises the amazing work that, that you do. It, it's fabulous. I mean, I, I have to uh, confess that uh, until um, uh, the last couple of months, I shamefully didn't know uh, much about you. And it's just been an amazing journey for me to discover a your life and, and b your work thank you um now, now tell me who would you like to hear next on five of my life i would think barack obama and you could ask him the question why the hell didn't you achieve more in eight years in office yeah promised so much he God, promised so I, much I and am, delivered so little i am such a sucker for good oratory yeah. I, I, I honestly five minutes of him talking you go whatever it is mate i'd vote for you yep. and, and, and then if you look at the outcome it, it might not be as clever <laughs> <laughs> but i like a good intention that's, yeah. Uh, yeah that's very good um dr keith Zuter, you are a bloody legend mate and thank, thank you. you very much for coming in <laughs> thank you The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 